So guys, if you want on the second and fourth uh, Saturday of each month, if you want some free food, free bacon, free potatoes, and uh, of course, grace, which is free and a good word uh, from the Lord, want to invite you to come to that. And then, like I said, all the other community groups are going. Mine's going on Thursday nights, uh, and there's several other in the community. You can find those online on the uh, ministry page. On the, There'll be a, a little tab there that says community groups. And then several different Bible studies uh, have started. One is Laura Osnes is in Genesis. She just kicked hers off. Uh, the women's retreat is next week. So gals, this is the last week to sign up for the retreat. Make sure that you do that today. And I would just encourage you that if, if you're a gal that's part of the church and you haven't connected with some of the other ladies in the church, you gotta go to this event. It's a great way to build community, a great way to get to know some, some gals and uh, to get connected. So make sure you sign up for that today. And then guys, like I've been saying the last several weeks, Stock up the freezers for those of you who have kids while your wife is gone. Uh, get some frozen pizza and some Top Ramen ready. The kids are going to be full of nutrition next week, right? Um, I think that's funnier than you do, personally. And uh, Allie's going to come up and share about her Roman study. So, um, Allie, why don't you come on up? This is, uh, every now and then, it, it is surprising. People say, who's your wife? And so this is a good Sunday to say, this is my wife. I'm married to her. Uh, Hi. Hi. <laughs> Hello. 16 years in November, right? 16, yeah, yeah okay, uh, good, yep. December. That's what I said, December. <laughs> Hi, I'm the wife. How are you? <laughs> uh, my name is Allie. Um, it's good to see you all here this morning, and I just want to talk about the Roman study on Wednesdays. It starts this week, which is the 18th, every Wednesday night at our house. So if you don't have my address or don't have the information, come talk to me or put your name on the sign-up sheet out in the info booth uh, so that I can contact you this week. And I want to tell you why you must come to Romans. You have to come. Here's why. And this is for the women. So if men show up, then I don't know about that. But um, <laughs> for the ladies, um, there's some really awesome things that happen when we gather to study God's word. Um, we grow in anticipation to share. So as you get into the word, as you study, as you look up passages in scripture, God starts to speak to your heart, and you write down things that the Lord is convicting you of, and he starts to speak into your life. And so when we come together, it's an opportunity to share, what's God doing in my life, and what's he doing in your life? Um, through that, we also gain some accountability. Knowing that you have to stand before somebody week by week and have that homework done is a good source of motivation to get into the word on a regular basis. We also learn endurance through that. Um, and we grow in relationship and fellowship. If you feel like you've been coming to Sierra Bible for a while and you don't know a lot of people and you feel like you still need to get connected, come to a Bible study. Come meet your sisters in Christ who are there to encourage you and to pray for you and to stand beside you as you walk through life. Um, also, you will grow in the knowledge of God's word. Um, you'll learn about the book of Romans, 16 chapters. How is the book broken up? Chapters 1 through 7 is all about how desperately we need God to step in and show us his righteousness. And chapters 8 through 16 is about God's great and precious promises for each of us, that he stands with us in prayer, that he doesn't condemn us, that he has adopted us as his children. So we're going to look at God's promises. Also, that as we gather together to study, it is different than 
coming to listen on a Sunday morning to a sermon. When we come, we are here to gather as the saints and we listen and we engage those listening skills as Jesse talks through the word. But when you study, there's something different that happens. It's like the Lord reaches into your heart, opens you up and starts to examine who you are on the inside. It's like a kid in biology class who puts that prepared slide underneath the microscope and looks at what would normally, you know, a normal strand of hair you look under the microscope and you see, whoa, it looks way different than what I see just on the outside. And that's what God does when we start to study his word. He examines our hearts and he shows us what we're really made of and then lovingly guides us in change and in growth. Um, and that, in turn, affects our prayer life. Um, another way that you're impacted in study is that God will increase your prayer life. He'll give you so many ways to praise him, to worship him. He'll teach you how to pray for others and those who don't know Jesus. Um, and how, can you, how you can pray that God's truth would impact their lives. And then lastly... Um, through the book of Romans, we will go through the gospel, and we will learn the ins and outs of what the gospel message means for each of us, how to present the gospel, that we are all dead in sin, but Christ found us laying there dead, and he did spiritual CPR on us, breathed life back into our body, gave us a new heart, and that the gospel is there for everybody. There is no one that the gospel isn't for. The worst sinner, the most pious person ever, the gospel is there for everybody. Um, so if you feel maybe like you're a little uncomfortable or you don't know anybody who's going to go, just show up. Hi, we've met. I'm Allie. Okay, we're friends now. Come to the Bible study. Don't feel uncomfortable. Um, come meet new people. Study God's word Wednesdays, 630, 6.30 to 8. I've been praying for boldness for her for the last <laughs> several years. She's pretty shy. and um, No, she's a good teacher, so you gals are in for a treat. Um, and then uh, is Tracy Cuneo in this service as well? I don't know if she's here. At, at the info booth, uh, in addition to all the other stuff that we have going on, Tracy Cuneo helps facilitate a mentoring program for girls based off Titus 2. So it's not a Bible study like what Allie mentioned uh, and it's not an accountability thing. It's a place for you as a gal, if you feel you're younger in your faith and you could use a mentor, Tracy's got a program for you that she'd love to connect you with uh, some other mature women who can help you grow in your faith and in your marriage or being a single person, whatever it is that you're going through, uh, we've got somebody to help connect you with, and that is at the info booth as well. With that said, if you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, would you raise your hand, and one of the ushers would love to hand you one of our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to finish chapter 1 of Genesis. Galatians chapter 1. Um, I've been having a problem with that all, all morning. And uh, we're going to be in verses 11 through 24. And it's customary for us as a congregation, as a, a group of people, we love to honor God's word. So would you stand with me, please, uh, one last time to uh, read these verses together and then to dive into them. Verse 11, chapter 1, Galatians. <clears throat> For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own 
age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. What I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Lord, would your word be true to us and move our lives closer to you this morning? In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Um, you may be seated. So Paul revisits something he's already stated uh, that we stated a couple weeks ago. Uh, if you remember in chapter one, since you're there, you can briefly look at it. Paul says again that he's an apostle, not through men or from men. And he reiterates this idea in the section that we just read. What Paul is trying to do, what he's stating in, in this particular text is he's letting those who are part of the Galatian church as well as those who've come into the Galatian church to rob the gospel from the Galatian church. He's trying to let them know this gospel I preached, it's from Jesus and Jesus alone. It's not from anybody else other than Christ himself. And this is important. He's establishing himself and his authority and his leadership. And he again starts bringing up the idea of grace and the gospel. Now, it might seem to you over the coming weeks, and maybe even over the last few weeks, that we are continuing to revisit a particular theme within this letter, or that we are preaching, to a certain degree, the same message every week. And the reason that is the case is because that's the structure of the letter, and that this message of grace, and that we are saved by grace, has to be reiterated within the church, within your own heart, within your, our own communities over and over and over again. The gospel actually needs to be reiterated. The message that we are saved by grace needs to be reiterated in our lives, in our prayers, in our thoughts, in our witness continually. Often, I believe, the reason that many churches go into a downward spiral and become more materialistic is because the message of grace is lost or it's assumed. That the preacher assumes the people in the church know the gospel. It's to never be assumed. How easy is it, my friends, to, to just forget the idea of grace? Wayne this week sent me an article. It was an interesting article on um, the, the modern, the, I think it was called the modern day legalism. And it had some context of scriptural stuff. Because what happened, again, remember, just to reiterate the big idea, Paul planted the Galatian church, planted it with the foundation of grace, saved by grace by Jesus Christ. Judaizers came in and said, listen, in order for you to really be saved, it's not just by grace. It's also by adhering to the Mosaic law, uh, specifically the, the, dietary law, the dietary laws in addition to circumcision itself. So they said, listen, if you're going to be saved, you have to, actually, you have to actually not only accept Jesus by faith, you have to accept him by all of your good deeds, specifically the good deeds in the Old Testament as, as well. You have to do these things. And if you don't do them, you're not saved. Paul hears about it. He's in an uproar. He's upset because they're adding to their faith. And you and I still have a tendency to do this. And this article in Modern Day uh, uh, Legalism, uh, what it stated was there was a gentleman who moved out of the city. 
And the reason he moved out of the city, and the reason some of you have moved out of the city, is because you've gotten tired of city life, the pressures and the strains. And what this, are, this author said, basically stated the, the legalism that exists within a city. And so he decided to move to a smaller town like ours, in, in the rural woods, and, you know, a little bit more backcountry. Hopefully people are a little bit nicer. People are a little bit kinder. And he said, I then was faced with a different kind of legalism and persecution that didn't exist in the city. Here's where his examples were this. I was a less of a person because I chose to use plastic bags over reusable bags. I was less of a human because I chose to have a plastic straw instead of a paper straw. Are you, can you relate to this at all in the Tahoe Truckee Basin? Uh, now, I, I have to say this because we do live in a very, we live in a culture that's really hypersensitive to these kind of things. Did you know that? We're, we're like, we're, we're in what's called the triggered culture where people get triggered over little things. They get upset about little things. And we tend to think that because we do things one way, we're better than another group of people or another culture. And so and, and at the end of the day, I want you to know this with everything I'm about to say. I have to, I have to actually take time to explain to you uh, which I think is sad that I have to do this, that I believe that God has placed humankind in charge of this world that we are to care for it. it. It goes all the way back to Genesis. God makes Adam, he creates Eve, he puts him in charge of the garden, and he says, take care of it, to the extent that he actually has the ability to name all of the animals. And he tells Adam, you get to now shape, mold, and form the world for its good. And we have an obligation here in Tahoe and everywhere else to care for our world. Okay, are you with me? Um, there's a, a gal in our church uh, really close with her, and uh, she was letting me know that she gets bothered every time I grab one of my little water bottles because they're wasteful. <laughs> and uh, I'm destroying the earth, right? So she let me know. She said, she said, I'm going to get you a water bottle. I said, cool, just make it a cool water bottle. Make sure there's not a straw. I, I'm, I don't know. I, don't, I just don't feel comfortable preaching. Going, yeah, pre-. <laughs> um, now, all that to be said, there, there, we, we fall into these traps where we're not just as Christians, but in our culture, that, that in order to be a good human being, you have to live your life a particular way. And what's unfortunate about the culture we live in right now, if you don't embrace these particular truths, then, then you're labeled all kinds of different things, a bigot or a hateful person or somebody who doesn't care about culture or society. And someone's going to create a hashtag about that and they're going to spread it all over the internet and they're going to slam you uh, over the internet. And, and in fact, this is a true story, there, there was a gal um, that, that on a particular Sunday when I was preaching, I made a joke about, John Amon's beard. And that particular person was offended by that particular joke and felt that the joke was, to a degree, racist. Now, I'm, I don't think I'm a racist. I pray to God I'm not a racist. But we live in a culture where everyone's really, really sensitive and that we take things and, and, and we start to judge someone's heart and motive without really ever sitting down with that person and knowing their heart and their motive, right? 
And, and when it comes into the church, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, you're so focused on the exteriors, you're so focused on the, the, the shallow side of things that you're not really getting to the heart of the issue. You're not really getting to the heart of who the person is. You're not really getting to the heart of the gospel and who the heart of Jesus is. And I think, I think the, one of the main reasons, I'm on a tangent right now, I think one of the main reasons that this happens is because our culture has lost the art of communication face-to-face. In fact, I think I had heard one of my favorite authors this week said, we've exchanged the porch for the television. We used to sit on the porch and talk. Now we sit in front of a box and it talks to us. And so now we've lost our ability to really connect with humans and with people. And it's amazing to me, here we are with a book that's been written so long ago and how, how applicable and apropos it is for us today still. That's God's word. That's why we need to read God's word. So Paul is fighting against this, and one of the ways that he's fighting against it is by sharing his testimony. He's sharing his faith. He's he's letting us know his particular story and how his particular story is woven into the great story of Jesus Christ. Uh, I think it was J.R. Tolkien that that stated that, that every good book is a good book. You've loved that good book. Or you could even translate it to a good movie because the gospel is in the movie. That the underpinning of the book or the underpinning of the, the, the movie you're watching is really good because the gospel's there. And what I mean by that, he said, just the principle, just bas- the basic principle of death and resurrection. How many stories have you, have you read or watched where the character either is at the precipice of death, seems to have died, only to, to rise again? That's every Marvel movie ever made, by the way. That's every comic book ever written, by the way. The, the, the character getting beat up and thrashed only to rise from the ashes once again, right? There, there, there is a Superman, and then every Superman has his kryptonite that he must overcome. And in the gospel, when you, when you understand this, you understand that, that the Superman is Jesus, the kryptonite is sin, and that Jesus has died to defeat the kryptonite, the sin. And so Paul says, I've got a story in my life. One of the things that um, I went through when I went through ministry school years and years ago was a class on how to give your testimony. Now that word testimony, I, I try to the best of my ability to be not just churchy. So testimony is a churchy word. Testimony is a way to say, say this is my particular story and how God has worked in my life. And every Christian should have some kind of story, some kind of testimony. And what we learned when I went to the school is we first would, we sat down in groups. Say, okay, I want you to give your testimony in 30 minutes. Took a little bit of time. Most of us couldn't do it in 30 minutes when we first started. 35, 40 minutes, maybe an hour. And then as time progressed in the class, we learned how to give our testimony not just in 30 minutes, but then to do it in 15, then to do it in 10, and then do it in three. Can you give your testimony in three minutes? And the idea was that our testimony the story of what God's done in our life would impact somebody if whether we had a 30-minute conversation or three minutes on the bus about how God has worked in our life or in your life so that they can walk away and go, okay, yeah, God is actually really real in today's society, in today's people. What's your testimony? Paul gives his testimony briefly here. He gives us a brief synopsis of who he was. This is basically the flow of the sermon this morning. He tells us what his former life was, what his resurrected life was, and what the fruit of that life was 
uh, being born again, having a new experience with Jesus. What's your story? And the reason this is so important, the idea of testimony, the idea of your story being wrapped in God's story, is Revelation tells us that we will overcome the accuser who accuses us day and night before God the Father. Just understand something about what I just stated from Revelations. Satan stands before God, and he accuses you of all of the things in your former life or in your current life to beat you up. You're not good enough. You're not a good dad. You're not a good husband. You're not a good mother. You're not a good student. You're not a good daughter. You're not a good son. You should be filled with shame. You should be filled with guilt. You are no good. You shouldn't even come to church. You're so unworthy. You shouldn't read your Bible. You're not going to understand it anyways. You shouldn't pray. God doesn't listen to you. All of those things are the things that Satan is doing. He's accusing you and and beating you up and telling you that things that just simply aren't true, they're lies. And what the, the author of Revelation tells us is, in the end, we will overcome the accuser by, number one, the blood of the lamb. Everyone say blood of the lamb. <clears throat> Which is to say that, that we overcome Satan by the cross of Jesus. It's not by your blood. It's not by your effort. But it's by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, it says that we would overcome him by the word of our testimony. Looking Satan in the face and saying, you can't accuse me because my past life no longer identifies who I am. My past life no longer tells you who I really am. That's just a chapter in my story. But the rest of the story is, is continues in salvation. So here's what happens with Christian testimonies. Many of them are not done well. And the reason I say that is because this is a typical male testimony. Before I came to Jesus, I hung out with a lot of girls, and I did what I do, did with girls. I drank a lot of alcohol, and I partied really hard. And, and they share all of the, the things they did in their past life as if no one you know, knows what dumb 20-year-old men do at 20 years old who don't know Jesus, right? We all have the same story. You were dumb at 20. Anybody? Are you 20 this morning? You're dumb. Just <laughs> love you. God loves you. You're dumb. Admit it. <laughs> This is the Bible's first step to wisdom, by the way, is to admit you're a fool, okay? Then you progress in life, especially what happens, and we've got several people, you're here this morning, you're here because you were dumb in your 20s, you got married, you had kids, and you realized, oh, wow, life is more than just what I thought it was, I better start getting my relationship with God back, and, and then you come back to church, and, and, and what happens is there's this emphasis on, on the old life, and then they say this, and then I got saved and everything worked out. So what was really glorified was the past life. And what wasn't glorified was the new life, the resurrected life in Jesus. What should be emphasized in the testimony, as such as it is in Paul's life, he, uses, he spends very little time talking about the past life, and he spends a whole lot of time talking about what it means to be born again. So let me give you a couple identifiers of somebody who's not a Christian. So if you're here this morning and you're trying to figure out what the, the whole big picture of Christianity is, what does it mean to be outside of God, you're, you're here on a good Sunday. Okay, if you're wondering, why do I need a relationship with Jesus? Here, here's a couple things that, that are markers of a life that is not in connection with God the Father. Number one, the former life or the old life is filled with sin even if it's deeply religious. It's filled with sin, even if it's deeply religious. What do I mean by that? Number one, you may not be religious at all, and you're still a sinner. 
Sin detaches us, removes us from a relationship with God. Sin is anything, anything that is not in line or accordance with God's word. And I don't even have to tell you what that is. You, you know it. Usually feel it or sense it. And, and usually the results of sin in our culture are best filled with the, with the emotion of feeling guilt, the emotion of feeling shame, or the emotion of feeling dirty, or another big one, the emotion of feeling isolated and depressed. If those are things that you struggle with on a continual basis, those are evidences of not being attached, or another better way of saying it, not being in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And the important part of this is one part of the group may be totally filled with sin, but you may be coming to church every, listen carefully now because this is really apropos for you who are in the room this morning. Just because you come to church and just because you serve doesn't mean you know who Jesus is. You'll let that hang there for a minute. Because you could come every week, but if you are not devoted to the person of Jesus Christ, and notice the language. When I say things, I'm trying my best to say them in a particular way that has deep meaning so you, you walk away and understand the differences. And I have to go back and re-communicate and communicate against why the gospel is so important. It's about being connected with the person of Jesus, not the actions and the deeds of Jesus. This is what the Pharisees and the Judaizers had nailed down. What was Paul's life? He was pious and religious. Paul tells us, he lets us know, he says, I was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. A Pharisee was somebody who was, who was not just a student of the law, but a leader of the law of God. What it meant is everything in the Old Testament, Paul, Paul was a highly intellectual, very intelligent person. He had dual citizenship. He was a Roman, and he was educated with all of the Roman education that he had. In addition, he was also a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew Hebrew, he knew the law of God, and he was in the top, if you will, 1% of his class. He was in charge of the modern-day church this dude was doing it right everybody looked to paul if someone said how should i study the law how does this law apply uh, into my life they would go to paul now i want you to step into the first century church here for a minute i want you to understand that the that the this church the judeo jewish church had a ton of authority uh, that that they that they were able to carry out amongst those of their own faith. It's one of the reasons why they were given a particular ability to actually manipulate the Roman system to crucify Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, had given full reign, they wouldn't do that, but because there was some limitations because of them being in the Roman Empire, they had some stipulations there. Now, let, I want you to understand what's happening. What's happened here? What's happening in the former life? We're identifying the former life of Paul. Paul, who is a Pharisee of Pharisees, it tells us in Scripture, listen to Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Saul, which was Paul's name before becoming a Christian, was ravaging the church. Imagine if this was in Truckee. And our system was set up where the religion, the religion of the day had this authority. And he would go into house after house, and he would drag off men and women and he would commit them to prison. Imagine, imagine right now someone's outside and they're, they're waiting for you. And they're watching you drive home to Glenshire or Olympic Heights or Sierra Meadows. 
Wherever it is that you leave, they're watching, they follow you, they see you enter into the home, they grab you, they drag you, and they throw you into prison because you've gathered in this room together under the name of Jesus instead of the name of Yahweh. In addition to that, Acts 26, 11, this is Paul, actually his own words. He says, I punished them often in the synagogues and I tried to make them blaspheme. He says, I dragged them to the court. I tried to get them to say that they didn't believe in Jesus. And in raging fury, he says, against them, I persecuted them, some of them even to foreign cities. So he would drag Christians out of their homes throw them into the synagogue. He would beat them, whip them. Some of them were even murdered and killed, such as Stephen, the first martyr. Others were cast out of Truckee. You can't live here anymore. You got to go to Reno. And some of you were like, yeah, it's cheaper there. <laughs> he would cast them out. This is what he did. Now, imagine now, that's his former life. Even though he's religious, he doesn't know Jesus. Just because you're religious doesn't mean you know Jesus. I know people who are dyslexic, who can't read their Bibles, who are far more in love with Jesus than some professors I've had in college. Now imagine this. This is Paul. He's beating, persecuting, calling other Christians out. I mean, he's murdering them. He is, he is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is dedicated to the old traditional religion. He was a Judaizer. Then all of a sudden he walks in. This gentleman walks into Sierra Bible Church you know he's been murdering people. You know he's been beating them. He walks up the center aisle for all to see. He sits in the front row and the song on the Apostles' Creed comes forward and, and the, the music sings and rings that Jesus Christ is the only son from God the Father and he has his hands raised in the air and he's singing the songs, I believe in Jesus. What would you do? I know what I might do. Take my beautiful wife who was just up here run over to Children's Church, grab my kids, and head home. Some of you can tell me how it turns out later. But this is what Paul did. Paul says, they, 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 he, if you look at the text, he says they were hearing about what was happening, that he who used to persecute the faith is now actually preaching the faith. This is, this is Paul's story. This is his old life was to beat and to persecute Christians. Then he gets into his new converted life. And he goes through a process that's really interesting. First of all, he was persecuting Christians. As he was persecuting Christians, he ends up on the road to Damascus. You've heard that term as a Christian at some point. On the road to Damascus, Jesus actually shows up visibly to Paul, preaches the gospel of, of himself to Paul. Paul is converted. He's blind for a period of time. And then, if you notice in the text, it says he went to several places. One, he went to Arabia, then back to Damascus, then to Jerusalem, and then Syria and Cilicia. Now, Arabia is important because what happened is, is Paul, after his initial conversion, he went to Arabia for some three years. He just disappears. He falls off the map. And I believe, I believe, we don't totally know because the text doesn't tell us anywhere in Scripture, that, that he spent three years unlearning that you earn God's love through the law of God. He had to unlearn his religiousness and his piousness and his self-righteousness and he had to learn that he was saved by grace and grace alone through faith alone in Jesus alone I think it took him three years and, and so after three years what does he do now that he's been converted he goes back to where in the text back to Damascus 
where he was just persecuting other Christians in the faith. He goes back, he goes back to his old life, to his old friends, and to his old enemies, and now as a new man, he preaches a new message. That's a marker of a converted life. A marker of the converted life is to move on away from the former life and then to move forward into the new life, the, the life filled with faith, and to face the old life and to know that you're no longer identified by the old life, you're identified by the new life and the new man. And one of the ways that Paul's able to do this is he, he comes out and he just says, hey, listen, I'm so, I am so rooted in the gospel of grace, I can actually confess my own sin. I can actually tell you he actually doesn't hesitate to share his own sin and his own failure in the hopes that the power of God would be shown through his weakness. One of the main markers of a Christian is the ability to admit their sin and to confess it. As Martin Luther said, the life of a believer is a life of repentance. It's, it's the ability to say, you know what? <sighs> I did something wrong. It's the ability to say, I'm sorry, and it's the ability to say not just I'm sorry because I'm sorry is not enough. Please forgive me. Do you know Christians should be the ones who forgive the first? We should be the first ones to forgive in our marriages, the first ones to forgive in our relationship with our children, the first ones to ask for forgiveness in any close, intimate relationship we have, to your boss or, or, or to a good friend, anybody. I'm sorry, please Forgive me, I've wronged you. And Paul, he's able to take his sin and say, listen, listen now, this is marker number one, I confess my sin. And marker number two is, but my identity is in Jesus. That's how I can confess my sin. If you ever follow uh, in the Old Testament, there is a particular king, most of you are aware of, his name was David. And David in the New Testament is described this way. David was a man after God's own heart. Now when you read that, and you go, well, man, David must have been. If you've never read the Old Testament, and you read, okay, there's this king, and he was a man after God's own heart, and you're like, man, you know what? I need to probably go back to David's life and see what made him a God after, after man's own heart. And so David's story, if you know David's story, David stepped out on his balcony one day, and he engaged, and at that time would be modern-day pornography. He stood on the balcony. He saw Bathsheba nude showering down below as his, as his house sat on a precipice, saw her, desired her, went to his dudes and said, it's not enough for me just to look. I need to touch, taste, and feel. Would you go get her for me? And so they did. And she comes to his house. He obviously has relationships, a relationship with her, and she gets impregnated. And the next thing you know, David's like, oh my gosh, everyone's going to know what I've done. She's a married woman. Now, mind you, he's also a married man. And so he, what he does is he says, Uriah is her husband, finds out who her husband is. He's actually out fighting David's war. Go get him, bring him home, tell him as a gift for his service, I'm allowing him to be with his wife. So the hope is Uriah comes back from fighting David's war, goes in back to his, his, his wife, sleeps with his wife, and then it's, it's as if, oh, well, Uriah now has a new baby with Bathsheba. David's off the hook. But Uriah is such a godly man, he says, I can't. Thank you, David, for bringing me home. I'm actually going to sleep on the doorstep of my house. 
I'm not going to go inside. I'm not going to lie with my wife because my men, my brothers in arms are out fighting and they're not with their ladies. They're not with their family. So I can't either. What a noble guy Uriah was. So David, still trying to cover up his sin, what does he do? David goes to Uriah and says, oh, you got to go back to war. It's time. And then he tells, he tells all the generals, tells the army, put David on the front lines of the battle. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. I said it so confidently, though. Someone of like, yep, it was David. David fought. And Uriah goes to the front line of the battle, and David places him there so he'll die. And sure enough, he dies. Then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. All seems well, but his sin is eventually found out. Now, now if I read that without reading and understanding the rest of the Bible, read that and go, this is a dude after God's own heart? This is a guy I'm supposed to duplicate? These are the, this is a, so I need to learn lessons from this guy? I don't think so. This guy sounds like a horrible husband, sounds like a horrible king. But the reason that, that David was a man after God's own heart is because whenever David messed up, he fessed up. And every time he fessed up, he went back to God and he begged and he pleaded for forgiveness and grace and mercy. And because he knew that God was a merciful God, he was no longer identified in the New Testament through a relationship with Jesus Christ with his sin. So in the Old Testament, we are exposed to the reality of the sin of man. I've had people tell me before, God can't be real. Look at all the gnarly stuff in the Old Testament. I go, that stuff in the Old Testament is not there for us to duplicate. It's there to share with us the reality of what happens to cultures and societies when we shove God out of the picture. So the Old Testament sets us up for our great need for a Savior. And once that Savior has come, in the New Testament, we're never told about the sin of David. We're never told what he did with Bathsheba. We're told that because of the work of Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection of his own death, that David is a man after God's own heart. And why do we rejoice in that? Why do we say, Jesus, thank you for that? Because you are no better than David. I've been, over the years, I've had people tell me, that's not true. That's not true. I'm not David. I would never do that. So Jesus allows us to see the standard when he says, if you've ever hated someone, you've committed murder. Men, if you've ever looked at a woman lustfully, you have done what David has done. And every man in the room went. Because you know it to be true. And our only hope is in Jesus. And this is what Paul understands. He says, listen, listen to this now. He was a persecutor of the church, a radicalizer of that faith. And he says after he's saved, look at, look at now, go to, you got to see it for yourself, verse 15. But when he, speaking of Jesus, had set me apart before when? Before I was born. Paul is stating that his old life, all that is negative, all that was bad, that God used it and is using it to glorify his son. You see, when, when, you, when you, you're part of your testimony, your story is that you are no longer identified by the man or the woman or the person who did all of those bad things or said all those stupid things. You're identified by what Jesus has done. And now that you've been saved and you go, wait a minute, how, how come, how, what do I do now, now that I'm saved? You rest in your salvation. You rejoice in your salvation. The idea that Paul states here, he says, he chose me before, he chose my life before 
I was ever born, what he's stating is, I, how many bad things do you think Paul did before he was born? He didn't do any before he was born. He wasn't born. How many good things did he do before he was born? He didn't do anything. So the reality of what Paul teaches us is, if you're really good, it doesn't earn you salvation. If you're really bad, if you're really, really bad, it, it doesn't mean that you can't ever be saved because you're really bad. Paul's stating salvation comes down to, literally, he states here, Jesus lifted the veil off of my, my eyes. It comes to the grace of Jesus, not because of your works, but because of the work of Jesus. The veil is lifted in his life and in his story, and now in his new story, he now is living for the glory of God. You know what this teaches us as far as grace is concerned? It teaches us that no matter how huge your sin is, you can never overturn God's love for you. And the church would do itself a favor by admitting and realizing that nobody's trespass, nobody's guilt is bigger than God's grace. Come on. Come on now. And you know why this is so important? You will only get this to the extent that you get this. You will only give people grace to the extent that you have that you realize you've received grace. This is why, like Paul, we have to say, like Paul, wretched man that I am. Paul, in fact, he, he even says it at one point in text, he says, you know what? I don't understand myself. That's what he says. I, I, don't, I don't get me. I know who God is. That's essentially what he says. This is the Jesse version of the Bible now. I know who God is, and, and, and inside my heart, there's certain things I know I'm supposed to do, and I don't do them. And he says, there's other things I know I shouldn't do. I know I shouldn't do those things, and I do them. And then he says, wretched man I am. Have you ever felt frustrated in your faith like that? And then he cries out to God as if, as if asking a question, and he already knows the answer to the question, who will save me from myself? Who will liberate me from this war that exists within me? And Paul returns back to the beautiful truth. His grace is sufficient for me. His love for me is sufficient. No matter how big your sin is, his grace is always bigger. And there's always a new day for you to continue to dive into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, every single person wants a blessing Every single person wants to know that they're loved, regardless. There's another tremendous Old Testament story. Some of you might remember it from Je Genesis chapter 32. Remember Jacob is hanging out, and, and God, a spirit of the Lord, shows up. And uh, Jacob ends up wrestling with the spirit of the Lord. And Jacob refuses to let go. He and to one point, the, the, the spirit of God touches his hip and breaks it off of it inside of his leg, and he, he, he breaks a bone inside of Jacob. We're told that Jacob actually had a limp after this encounter for the rest of his life because of his wrestling match. And what he said is, I refuse to let you go, God, is essentially what he's saying, until you bless me. That's the grace of God. I'm not going to let my old life identify me. I'm going to hang on to Jesus. I'm going to wrestle with Jesus. I'm going to be willing to walk with a limp in my life so that I can know the blessing of God. And indeed, if you have an old life, you probably have a little bit of a limp today. You're still just kind of, I know God loves me, but man, I still am struggling with some things and I still have some hurts in my past life and 
I still have some things that, that are affecting me emotionally and there's things that, that bother me and give me distress and anxiety. Those things still exist. But you know what we're supposed to do in regards to the grace of God and living in that grace? Not let go of Jesus until he gives us his blessing. To wrestle him. To wrestle with the Lord in prayer. This is exactly what Paul did. I, 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 one other theory is maybe Paul went to, to Arabia to just kind of bemoan the fact that he wasted so many years of his life. Maybe it took him three years to just kind of work through, I can't believe I did what I did. Why did I act the way that I acted? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But we're not to bemoan the past life. We're to embrace the fact that it was part of our life and that God now wants to use his grace and your story to bring people to Jesus Christ. I've shared with you before this great grace of God, how the grace of God and what he's sharing here, Paul says, you know, he did, this, he did this before I was born. David says in an earlier place, he says, you knit me in my mother's womb. You, you pieced me together. There's another place in Scripture that says that, that before the foundation of the world, that he's prepared good works for you to walk in beforehand, that you would walk in a particular good deeds. Do you know, my friends, that Jesus has a purpose for your life, just as he had a purpose for Paul's life? And your pain... And your bad experiences and your, the part of your old story, the good news is God can and will use it if you allow him to use it. He wants to use the bad parts of your life to bring about that which is good in other people's life as well as your life. I don't know why he does this other than he's just gracious and kind. I shared with you years ago with my first son. He was about three years old and I was shoveling the driveway one winter and he came out with a shovel that was way too big for him. And he wanted to help his daddy. Do you know how much he helped? He didn't. He made my job harder. But yet, having Peyton out there with me and seeing the little smile on his face and watching him just move snow from one place back to its original place, just being with him gave me joy last night Last night is a similar kind of story. I watched these uh, football documentaries, and uh, he wanted to jump in bed with me. It was about 9 o'clock at night and usually watch a little something before falling asleep. And he said, Dad, can I lay with you and Mom? And, and we're watching the football movie. And my son does not care about football like I do. I'm praying and praying and praying that he does, but it's just not happening. And so we're sitting there, and he's asking me all of these questions. I can't even enjoy the show. He's just asking me. He's, I can't hear what's happening because, Dad, what about this? What about this? Well, how come this? How come this? Just ask me all these questions. And, and uh, it was a blessing, and, and I'll rewatch the episode tonight when he's not in the room. And, um, <laughs> and I, realized, I realized that God's the same way when he folds us into his story for his mission. When I preach up here every week, I've got, in all honesty, I've got a shovel that's just too big for me. I feel inadequate to handle it. Oftentimes, I, I, feel, I feel like God is working in spite of me as I just kind of spiritually move people from one place back to right where they came from. <laughs> so I have a counseling session for Pastor Jesse here. Tonight. <laughs> there, but, I mean, I'm just being honest with you. But I know that God has called me in this particular season to lead our church in this area in this particular time.
regardless of who I am, in spite of my mistakes, in spite of my story, in spite of all of the things I experienced as a young man, both the things that happened to me as well as the things that I am completely culpable for, my own sin and my own mistakes and my own stupidity that I committed in the past and that I will commit probably later today. And yet God wants to take me as he wants to take Paul and put him into the story to see other people come to Jesus. And my friends, that is a calling that is not just for pastors and missionaries. It's a calling for the body of Christ. As I close this morning, I would plead with you. I would plead with you that you would fold your story into the grace of God and that you would allow God to use you to preach and to teach and to be missionaries wherever you live and wherever you are. The idea of being a missionary, the idea of being missional is an obligation for every single Christian. Would you, would you do me a favor? Would you make my job a little easier? Would you take some of the stress and strain off of the leadership and place some of it upon yourself, which is to ultimately place it into the gospel message of Jesus Christ? Jesus has a plan for you in spite of your mistakes and in spite of your sin. Your mistakes are never bigger than God's grace. So here's the takeaway here for the next steps. I had all these slides I put together for you. Notice how I can't use them because it's just too much for my brain. Um, Number one, what sin or sins do you think are keeping you from Jesus? What are some things in your life that you feel are a block between you and God? My encouragement would be that this week you would take time to confess these sins and to know that the Lord loves you despite those sins. Then ask the Lord to assist you in turning away from those sins, not to make you a better human being, but to do as Paul says, as part of the converted life. As Paul ends, he says, they glorified God because of me. That's the most important part of the testimony in the story. It's not that you would be glorified. If you were perfect, you would be the one glorified. But because you're not, it's Jesus who's glorified. And so ask the Lord to assist you in turning away from them, not not that you become a better person, but that you would glorify God because he's good. And number two, find a creative way this week to share the good news of Jesus with your neighbors, your coworkers, or your friends because you, after all, are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who saved you. This is something we do together as a family because Jesus has saved us together as a family. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Paul's testimony and story. Thank you that you saved an imperfect man and then you gave him a perfect message. Thank you that you're still in the business of saving imperfect people that we would proclaim a perfect message. Would you empower us and equip us now as we sing and leave this place to glorify you in all that we do and say. We trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand with us as we continue to worship in this last song.